0: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Glad to have you with us. Evan is off on holiday. Yom Kippur. Much-deserved break for him with his big announcement yesterday that he is uh, heading to New York City for great A great opportunity there, and we are thrilled for him. We are going to miss him, obviously. And I will be here for the next couple of days, filling in on the Evan Solomon Show um, as we sort out the future here. And we thank you for staying with us. And there is a lot going on. Uh, There's a lot going on. We're going to talk about the Quebec election. Francois Legault's uh, solid, solid majority, a second-majority government Uh, Despite what some are suggesting is a rocky campaign, I've always, you know, I've covered politics for most of my life. And when I was covering covering Parliament Hill, I would um, unapologetically uh, ask people who were covering Quebec from Quebec, tell me what this means. (laughs) Um, What I mean by that, I'm not trying to be a smart guy. What I mean by that is that uh, the lens of politics in that province are often, um, it's often a different Uh, it looks at things in a different way, the body politic, if you will. So his mistakes on immigrants and uh, talking about limiting and um, he said it would be suicide for Quebec to bring in more immigrants than 50,000. In other parts of the country, that could be, could be a fatal blow during an election campaign. It is not in Quebec. And we're going to ask a Quebec expert about why that is. And my slight understanding over the years um, of this is that in many ways, Quebecers look at immigration, yes, as a positive, it's a very progressive province, but they also see themselves as an island of a Francophone island in North America. And as important as diversity and growing the economy is protecting the French language. And that is a big factor. The other Part of this that we're going to talk about is the strong leader thing, (laughs) the strong leader warts and all thing. And we can see that in Ontario and other parts of the country as well, where Legault made mistakes. He made mistakes during the pandemic as well, but he was out there every day with a strong voice, even reversing himself in the pandemic. And clearly Quebecers either celebrate that, appreciate that, expect that, or forgive him for that, uh, because he's blunt about it and he is um, a Quebecer through and through. The other story we're watching very, very closely, it is tense on Parliament Hill right now. Um, The Hockey Canada hearings at the Heritage Committee are going on right now. Um, A second fund was revealed by the Globe and Mail earlier this week. That was used um, in part for settlements for sexual assault. Hockey Canada's current chair has Andrew Skinner has pushed back very, very hard on that, suggesting that this was more of an administrative situation than a um, than a shifting of money. And Hockey Canada there today is. Up and talking about in front of the MPs that sexual assault is a societal problem. Treatment of women is a societal problem. It is not any more pronounced or specific to hockey players and to the culture of hockey. That that is what I heard, at least partially, from the current chair of the board at Hockey Canada who is quite forcefully, Andrea Skinner, pushing back against the notion that hockey has a problem. The only problem with that, of course, is that we have an allegation of a group sexual assault where there were a number of players and one woman in a hotel room engaged in sexual activity that she later said was not consensual. That, that's what we have. And those kinds of things do happen in other parts of the society. They happen in other sports, not specifically like that. But that is not a uniquely hockey problem. What is a uniquely problem for hockey is the reaction afterwards. These are highly paid executives on the um, in in some cases with Hockey Canada, they have a lot of power. They get to help pick Team Canada. When they go to the Olympics, they hang out with millionaires. The, you know, I don't throw the word privilege around all that much, but in the sports world in this country, hockey is the top of the heap. That's all there is to it. And they know it. So what did they do? What did they do? We now know that they very quickly settled. They very quickly settled a lawsuit and thought that was going to be the end of it. The only problem with that is that reporters got a hold of it and started asking questions. And then they got called to parliament and their funding got cut and corporations started pulling funding from Hockey Canada. Um... I think one journalist put it well like what is hockey canada's function growing the game in canada like it's not that hard to do you know here 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 are a group of people who basically you know paid off facilitated a payoff of someone to while they say it was all about keeping it victim-centered and making sure she was okay, it sure smacks like a cover-up for the MPs who are questioning Hockey Canada officials. It sure smacks of a, let's just put some money into this and make it go away. I pointed out on our local show here in Ottawa just a few moments ago, um, and I'll point it out again. There is a injury to a hockey player uh, a former friend, a friend of uh, Brooke Henderson, incidentally in Smith's Falls, Neil Doof, who was seriously injured in a hockey game, went, I believe head first into the boards and couldn't play again and lost a was was going to Princeton on a scholarship. I think he still went to Princeton, but he had essentially got into a dispute with Hockey Canada about compensation and their insurance policy. My understanding is just even a few months ago that that thing is still unsettled. Now that is. The reason for these funds is to cover things like that injuries, and they are still arguing about that three and a half, four years later. This sexual assault allegation was settled within weeks, and remember, these were the top players in the 2018 World Juniors team. This is the, the, these are the cream of the crop of our best hockey players at that age group. So you tell me the difference there because that's clearly a difference in how they're treating it. They said, Oh, it's, it's about, it's all about the victim and making sure everything is all right with her. Maybe part of that's true, but the other part, the other truth here, they wanted this to go away as quickly as possible because that's the way they've operated for years. And you know what? No one told the hockey parents that their fees were going to these funds. No one told the hockey parents and the hockey associations that they all paid into that that's what was happening with their money. So as we speak, the Heritage Committee, on which oversees sport, is grilling Hockey Canada officials yet again. And we will drop into that live um, for the latest on that and where it's going to go. Um, when we come back after the break, in just a few moments, we are going to speak with David Hurdle, former Quebec cabinet minister, and now a political analyst at uh, Faskin about Legault, his victory, what it means for Quebec going forward. Does it mean anything for other provinces that, that he was able to overcome some, not fatal flaws in the campaign, clearly they weren't fatal, but a big majority. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. Thanks for being here. Stay with us. We're back in a moment.
0: It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. I uh, hope you're having a good day wherever you're listening to us. We are watching very closely what's happening on Parliament Hill Hockey Canada. We will drop in in the next 15 minutes to that committee hearing. It is getting uh, quite intense. By the way, Andrea Skinner, the uh, uh, one of the Hockey Canada officials being questioned, Uh, Suggested uh, and raised the sexual assault charges against Don Meredith, the Senator, the politician that was just announced, uh, suggesting that you see, it happens in politics too. Um, Of course, the MPs pointing out, yeah, but he was thrown out of the caucus. There was a criminal investigation. He was thrown out of the Senate um, and the players have not faced consequences. So this is the kind of tension we are hearing in committee. And I will bring you that uh, when we can, we do want to shift gears slightly. Uh, to a very important part of the country, of course, Quebec last night, another majority government for um, Mr. Legault and the CAQ, uh, 90 seats, 90 seats um, up from 74 in 2018. Uh, David Hertel, former Quebec cabinet minister from 2014 to 2017, is now legal counsel and political analyst at FASC, and he joins us on the line. Um, were you expecting 90? Uh, that that's a pretty big majority. Is that is that technically a landslide? I, I don't know when we hit that number. <laughs> it's
2: totally a landslide, Graham. We we at the beginning of the campaign we were expecting actually to for the CAQ to even hit a uh, hundred seats. Uh, mm. So, but ninety seats is a massive victory. What's interesting though is that all those seats are out basically outside Montreal. The island of Montreal itself only has one. CAQ seat. So it re- there really is a divide between the second largest city in Canada, the biggest city, obviously, in Quebec, Montreal, and the rest of Quebec, which went massively for the CAQ. And is
1: that is that the, um, is that the, the tone he set and the government he has formed, uh, the, the, whether it's the, the comments on immigrants or the defense of the French culture, it just plays differently in Montreal?
2: Well, it definitely does play differently in Montreal. I mean, it's true that uh, around 80% of all immigration in Quebec goes through the greater Montreal area. That's a fact. Mm. But uh, beyond that, I, I think also uh, François Legault and the CEQ benefited from a perfect storm in terms of – think about this, Graham. We had four opposition parties yeah. – which got between 13 and 15, 16% of the vote each. Mm. And so that in a lot of races, you have some members of the national assembly that have been elected last night with less than 30% of the vote. So Mm. think about that. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a resounding victory with 41% of the vote, the popular vote, but at the same time, The four opposition parties are so pigeonholed in their very rigid positions that the CEQ had also the open field to get the the middle-of-the-road, centre-right, white, francophone, regional vote, basically almost for itself.
1: Explain to people outside of Quebec how a premier can say something like he said about immigrants and had to apologize. Mm. He called it suicide if we went above Mm -hmm. 50,000. And he said that it was, uh, it was misunderstood. He felt that the board of trade understood him clearly, but he did kind of U-turn for people Mm. in other parts of the country who might see that as a, a deadly blow for any other leader. Why is Mm -hmm. it not a blow for Legault?
2: Well, and let's be clear. It's not the first time that François Legault and members of the CAQ government talk like that. François Legault spoke like that when he was in the opposition before 2018. Mm -hmm. And he he and members of his cabinet spoke like that since 2018. So this is not new. It's totally understood in Montreal as uh, a dog whistle for intolerance and even worse. And the reaction was swift. But the fact is, is that in, again, in outside of the greater Montreal area, in the Quebec regions, mostly Francophones, there is a block, a small but yet important block of older nationalist voters who uh, are not used to being uh, surrounded by immigrants. Uh, they're, they're not surrounded by immigrants. They're not in tune and in, in phase with immigration, like, for example, us in Montreal, which is basically it's part of our DNA. We, mm-hmm. we know this. We're a cosmopolitan city. And, and so th- when you juxtapose that, With the nationalist survival question of the French language and the French culture, there is, uh, and unfortunately, but there is a part of the electorate, again, in the regions that is susceptible to listen to that. And to to be activated by that, mm-hmm. and Fossiligo knows this. And again, Graham, you've seen this. I mean, this works in other parts of Canada, in the U.S., in Europe. It's part of that new modern right wing playbook of doing politics. I mean, you have socially conservative messages, and one of those messages is being anti-immigration.
1: Now, and and let me just um, and before people pounce, I, I do wanna I do wanna raise this as. Can you, like uh, Francois Legault has shown that he can raise questions about the policy of immigration without sinking his campaign and in fact, winning his campaign, without sinking his campaign and being branded a racist. He is facing questions about his motivation. As you said, the dog whistle Mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether can anybody else in any other part of the country do that without being vilified. I think even, um, I would even think Mr. Polyev as he, Mm -hmm. um, gets closer to an election would be, would need to be very, very careful about what he says Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. immigration policy. But clearly Legault is permitted to make those mistakes in a way that I would argue other parts of the country politicians do not have that leeway. And if you think I'm wrong, l- let me know. But but I do. There is that dynamic in Quebec, where where this is this is acceptable, and maybe not in other parts of the country.
2: I I agree with you, especially when you talk about Pierre Maliaev. I mean, just his wife. I mean, his wife is an immigrant. Yes. And, and 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 the fact is, is that I agree with you that in Quebec there is that part of the electorate. But again, I think he would not have been as successful as he was last night if there was more of a unified opposition. Yes. The fact
3: is, yeah.
2: is that, again, I agree with everything you're saying, and he was vilified. He was criticized. Mm-hmm. And, in, and the, the fact is that in Montreal, I mean, the CEQ was almost completely shut out of seats in, mm-hmm. in, in the Montreal area. And the fact is, is that there is reaction and there will be consequences. I think this will not stay there, and uh, he's going to have a hard time, for example, with the federal government wanting more powers in immigration was part of his platform, and he wanted a strong mandate for that. I think he's going to have to respond to that. Very, uh, he's going to have a problem with the federal government on that because of his positions. But at the same time, I, I think that because the opposition was so divided. And, and could not muster a, a united front against them. That allowed him, again, in a lot of seats in the regions to win with barely 30% of the vote with our first-past-the-post system that is so not adapted to five parties, five competitive parties. That's what allowed him. To have such a strong win, but at the same time, everybody knows with the labor shortage issue, what's going on right now in Quebec, that immigration is going to have to be part of the solution. And yep. even this government, this CAQ government, is going to have to bring in more immigrants, and they know it.
1: Very quickly, I want to read you a quote and get your reaction. I'm running out of time. This is from Michelle Dupont. She's 70 years old, a su- supporter, CAQ. She told the Canadian press this, um, She supports Legault because of his charisma, the humanity he showed during COVID, and his team. It's because of the platform, their values. It's above all the values that connect with me. I think a lot of Quebecers, she speaks for a lot of Quebecers. Would you agree? Not all of them.
2: Not all of them. I think she speaks for some Quebecers. But I think it is an overwhelming minority of Quebecers, and it's not the, the, the current or next generation of Quebecers. I think Quebec is evolving towards a different direction, and that's something that you're hopeful about. But again, a lot of older Quebecers in the region are still sensitive to that type of discourse, but it's moving in the right direction. It's going to take a bit of time.
1: Thank you, David. Appreciate it.
0: This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back, everyone. I am Graham Richardson. We are listening to Hockey Canada at the Heritage Subcommittee, which oversees sport in this country. The grilling MPs are um, subjecting uh, Hockey Canada figures to. There's two board chairs. The current one, Andrea Skinner, answering questions now with... Peter Julian from the NDP, and press, uh, the passport board chair, uh, Brindamore, uh, both answering questions. Let's listen in live. This is was, on Parliament Hill right now. You're listening to d- Peter Julian d- ask questions about Hockey 20, Canada 20 and sexual assault. Was there discussion of the 2018, the horrific allegations coming out of 2018, and the horrific, horrific allegations uh, that we've seen coming out of 2003?
4: I don't believe so. i was um, I was ill for one of the days of that board meeting in April, but I don't believe that there was uh, at least at least not while I was in attendance.
1: Has there been discussion of the two thousand and three uh, allegations at any board meeting over the last few months?
4: Um, there would have been discussion in the context of of um, an update from from Scott Smith, which I think uh, one of your colleagues referred me to. Um, just, just, to, just, to, just to report that an investigation was ongoing.
1: If, 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 That's it? Uh, Thank just you. to...
4: Peter, you've gone over time.
5: I'm sorry. That is Hetty um, Fry,
1: so... the chair of the committee, jumping in. Uh, they are very tight on time. All of the MPs want to ask questions. I uh, believe she is moving now to the conservative side or the liberal side. Uh, not clear. We will listen in in a moment. By the way, Andrea Skinner, the current board chair... In her opening statement uh, suggested that all sexual assault, sexual assault happens in all parts of society. And it's a problem in all parts of society. Raising Don Meredith, the Senator recently charged with sexual assault for incidents in 2013 and 2014. Um, a lot of the MPs took great issue with that. Number one, because he was tossed out of caucus. He was kicked out of the Senate. Um, he was, uh, clearly now facing criminal charges. And they pointed out this happened back in 2018. We're now in 2022 and there have been no charges and there have been no disciplinary actions against these, um, any of the players involved in this alleged sexual assault. Um, they also bring up the 2003, uh, allegations which have just come to light publicly. So their whole point, a lot of the questioning is, and again, um, It is the actions of the officials after the fact to make this go away that has raised so many questions about Hockey Canada's culture. Remember, if your kid plays hockey, Hockey Canada takes a portion of your fees. Boys, girls, uh, high level, house league, because they direct other hockeyists. They govern everybody, the entire game. If your kid was in novice and all of a sudden had to start playing half a half a rink and not a full rink for another couple of years if they brought back body checking instead of bringing in you know or or delayed body checking all of that comes from hockey canada and the problem is nobody told any of us that we would be helping to make sexual assault cases go away quietly and that's the problem what else is there what else is there? You know, um, Rick West had a TSN has done some extraordinary work digging on this story. So is the Globe and Mail about the culture here. And, and the, 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 thing about hockey is many of us are connected, whether it's on the street playing pickup or watching team Canada, try to win gold or the golden goal from Sidney Crosby or what have you, it's all connected to hockey Canada. So they know they have a special place here. This. People are absolutely flabbergasted that this was allowed to go on. Let's listen back in to the hearing on Parliament Hill. We're
4: moving forward our action plan, and we're making significant progress on that. And and that change is happening right before our eyes uh, with the current board and leadership.
1: Them away, madam.
5: Mattel, uh, you're two, two and a half minutes is up. So do you want John to go on now? Thank you. Uh,
6: thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Mr. Brindamore, one last time, do you have confidence in Scott Smith to lead this organization?
2: Madam President,
6: Madam Chair,
2: thank you to the member
6: for your question.
2: Mr. Nader,
6: it is not my decision to make. You're asking
5: my personal opinion.
6: Madam Chair, and Madam Chair could you please direct the witness to answer the question?
5: Could you please answer the question, Mr. Windermere? I believe that Mr. Smith has the necessary
6: qualities to be able to do something positive for the organization. He's someone who brings people together. He knows how to surround himself with a team that complements his, his own skills, he's a hard worker. Do you have confidence in Mr. Smith to lead this organization? Yes. Thank you. Ms. Skinner, would you uh, be in favor of directing all provincial branches to disclose to this committee information they have about historical abuse claims, including who investigated them, and which funds were used to settle claims at each of the provincial organizations?
1: Okay. Sorry, folks, we just lost the feed there for just a moment. Uh, that, that is the kind of tone that's been going on. We're going to jump back in again. Here is the committee hearing, the Heritage Heritage Committee on Hockey Canada.
6: Hockey Canada is using solicitor client privilege to hide third party investigations. So I'm asking you whether you, as, as chair of this board, as an effort to see meaningful change, whether these historical claims at the provincial level ought to be provided to this committee.
4: Uh, I, I would have to think about that, sir. And through you, Madam Chair, I would have—I uh, would have significant concerns about privacy. I think that uh, the young woman involved at the center of the 2018 incident—I um, think it's—I think unfortunately this has been a much more public process than she would have envisioned. And so I'd want to think carefully about the ramifications of of what you've proposed from um, from a from a, from a complainant's or victim's right perspective and from a privacy perspective. time is up, and I would like to
5: go to uh, Mr. Housefather for the Liberals. For five minutes, please, Mr. Housefather. Thank
7: you so much, uh, Madam Chair. Just to to come back, and and, and this is just my personal uh, thoughts, you're saying that the board acted coherently and competently when it decided to settle the 2018 Mm -hmm. claim, And 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 I just find that odd. Number one, again, not minuted. Number two... The whole discussion about settling a claim revolves around the legal risk of Hockey Canada and you have to understand the legal risk of Hockey Canada and your affiliates uh, and the players in order to understand whether or not you settle a case. Yet we were told by Hockey Canada at repeated hearings, they didn't know they had any of the individuals involved and they didn't know whether the underlying facts were true. Meaning to me, then you would settle every single case if the position is you just settle the cases because you want to protect the plaintiff, whether you have investigated or not. And finally, um, it seems that you didn't even have the actual agreement in in front of you when you're authorizing it. So in any case, I find it odd. And I just wanted to explain to you why I was so... uh, Categorical in my previous round of questions, I want to move to another uh, another issue because okay. you've talked about moving forward. So, um, you've talked about the I'm happy oversight to respond committee. To that. I, I didn't ask I'm happy anything. To respond to that. I didn't I'm ask sorry, anything. Ms.
6: Skinner, okay. You were not asked to respond.
7: I, I, the, you, you've talked about how the the oversight committee of experts tasked with monitoring and providing guidance on Hockey Canada's plan to eliminate toxic behavior in the sport is something that is really important, and the implementation oversight committee has been discussed a number of times by the board. Three-time Olympic gold medalist, Marnie McBean, alleged in August that she was asked by Navigator to sit on this committee. Was she asked to sit on this committee, Ms. Skinner? Uh,
4: According to the media reports, she was. Okay. uh, Navigator. The, the board, the board, the board delegated the recruitment of the panel to a third party, um, and so I, I can't say exactly what discussions uh, you know went on there. But I,
7: I, I read the article as well. Okay, and and she alleged, as you know, that it was rescinded because she made it clear the top hockey candidate officials. That is Anthony Housefather.
1: He's a Quebec member from the yeah. Liberal Party and a former, or he is a lawyer, and he uh, clearly understands his point. There really important. You, you didn't fully investigate, but you settled. You didn't minute the meeting. Why wouldn't you do those things if these allegations are so serious? I'm Graham Richardson in for Heaven Housing when we get back.
0: The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson. On the
1: iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Everywhere you turn these days federal, provincial, municipal the talk is housing and how to solve a crunch. Just talk to anybody trying to get into the housing market, whether it's in, uh, you know, BC, less pressure, arguably, in the prairies, but it hasn't been great there either. Ontario, uh, Quebec, Maritimes. It has been a very, very challenging time. How do you solve it? A lot of politicians running for municipal office now talking about the number of homes that have to be built to meet the demand over the next 10 years. Here in Ottawa, candidates talking about 100,000 homes over 10 years. It sounds great. What does it actually mean and what's it going to what's it, what what is going to be required to get it done, whether you're in the GTA, whether you're in Ottawa or you're in Vancouver, to ease this and get more housing for people? Um, no matter what age they are. Mike Moffat is a senior director, Smart Prosper- Prosperity and assistant prof at the Ivy School of Business at Western University. He often tweets and studies this issue. Uh, specifically, he joins us on the line. What is the problem? Is there one problem, uh, Mike, that that Canada is not building enough housing? And is there a simple solution or... Is it one of these policies where there's a whole bunch of things going on that you can't solve all at once?
3: Yeah. So, so overall, it's not so much a Canada-wide uh, problem. It's, it's mostly a sort of a lower mainland, BC, southern Ontario problem. That we're we're starting to see uh, housing issues crop up, particularly in Atlantic Canada. And it's simply that that our population is growing faster than our ability or desire to to build homes. So. You know, we need to build more houses. We have the provincial government talk about the need to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. We we think that's an appropriate target. And that's going to have to take a lot of uh, policy action. You know, some of this is regulatory reform, you know, changing approvals, processes, zoning and things like that. But we're also going to need to address the labor market side of it. That you know, I'm not sure we have enough uh, roofers and electricians and, and carpenters to build that many homes. So there's a suite of, of policies uh, needed. But I, th- I think the first step is admitting that we have a problem. And I, I'm happy to see a variety of mayoral candidates across the province say, you know, what they what they will do in their community to to, to play a role and in, in build enough uh, homes for the next generation.
1: Those issues you can't do as a mayor, you can't solve those big issues alone, which I guess is your point, right?
3: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there, there's four different sort of actors here. The, you know, the, the federal government uh, you know, decides immigration policy and policies governing international students. The province has a lot of those uh, labor markets uh, tools, you know, decides around rules around apprenticeships and so on. Uh, the municipalities play a role again with the uh, approvals processes, development charges, and so on. And the colleges and universities play a role. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the housing needs are, are coming from from students. So it's this kind of classic Canadian problem where we have three levels of government and other actors in the system, and they don't always coordinate very well, um, leading to to situations like this.
1: If you had to pick one thing. Like clearly Pierre Polyev has been talking about gatekeepers at the municipal level, and he's going to break that down. That's a good headline and it gets a lot of attention and of course taps a lot of young people who have basically felt ripped off in many parts of the country. But is it, is it that simple? Are they, are they simply not allowing more building permits?
3: Well, so that is that is part of it. So you know, there there there's some truth to that. That there there are limitations on the on the kind of housing that can get built. Uh, you know, we hear this debate in Ottawa about mm-hmm. uh, R1 zoning. You know, if I you know I live in the Glebe, I could tear down my house and uh, build a McMansion tomorrow. But if I wanted to build a duplex and triplex and and have some additional units. I might not be able to to do that under under our sort of regulatory system. So absolutely, there are regulatory barriers, but those aren't the only ones as well that, you know, getting enough, uh, you know, young people into the skilled trades, uh, figuring out how to build houses more efficiently. We build houses the same way. Uh, you know my dad did back in the 1960s and 70s so we need we need more innovation to figure out how to build these, these houses not just better but more energy efficient and so on so there's a lot of different areas and you know i think there's there's some truth to what poliov says but it's it's not the entire story
4: mm.
1: you also say that we're spending far too much time money uh, and energy on single family dwellings out in the suburbs right like there's not enough being spent on intensification and when I, I believe you've said that, and when you do that, though, don't you run into nimbyism, and that's part of the politics of the problem?
3: Yeah, that that, that is uh, that is part of the politics. And yeah, you know, overall, we're we're pretty good in this province about building two things. We're good at building sort of giant towers with small uh, studio condo apartments, and we're pretty good at building single detached homes. It's all of that sort of missing middle. Um, that's hard to build. And and some of that is nimbyism, but I think that can be overcome. I think we need to find a way to show how housing reform helps existing homeowners. Uh, We have a lot of homeowners in their 60s and 70s who would love to downsize, move into something smaller. Can we find ways to create more housing options for seniors, allow them to move into a smaller property and unlock those existing family homes? So, I think we need to look for these win-win solutions. And if it turns into this battle between, you know, homeowners and people who would like to be homeowners, you know, you you do encounter the this form of NIMBYism.
1: How far away are we? Let's take some of the problem places like the lower mainland, um, the GTA, parts of uh, parts of Ontario, let's say for an example. How far away are we from actually getting those young people um who are in their earning years into their own homes, like like who are currently feeling completely shut out. How how long is it going to take to solve this problem? Do you think?
3: Yeah, it, it's it's going to take years, but you know, I think we have, you know we we have to start somewhere, and you know, we are seeing young people sort of scatter all across uh, Canada, uh, searching searching for housing. So mm-hmm. you know. The Alberta government put ads on Toronto subways, uh, you know, basically touting the advantages of moving to Edmonton and Calgary, that you can, you know, be a 15 minute bike ride from, from work and have a home that's, you know, half of what it would cost in, in Ottawa. So I think it's going to be important for, for Ontario and, and Ottawa to fix this because otherwise we're going to lose a generation of young nurses and teachers and construction workers to Alberta, to Atlantic Canada, because it's just so much cheaper to live out there.
1: And is that net migration measurement out of Ontario? How much was housing a factor, do you think?
3: I, I think it's most of it. Uh, I think it's most of it. You know, people move for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you know, we do see people moving into Alberta because uh, oil prices are up and that's creating jobs out there. But most of the migration seems to be housing driven. We we saw during the pandemic with people able to work from home and say, okay, well, instead of living in a tiny condo in Toronto, I can get a much bigger place in, 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 a, in a place like Halifax, get a yard uh, and save some money. So I think a lot of this migration that we're seeing over the last two to three years is that combination of housing prices and being able to work from home.
1: Appreciate your time. Mike Moffat. as always. Thank you.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: All right. There is a big, big issue that is touching a lot of people. A lot of people listening. That's Mike Moffat. He's at the Ivy school of business at Western university and focuses on housing. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Mike P Moffitt, uh, a good follow. And, uh, cut through, he cuts through a lot of the, the rhetoric and the politics of this. We've had campaigns here in Ottawa, you know, fighting over what the number is for the next 10 years. And he points out this morning, by the way, on Twitter, when you talk about housing starts, those are not housing finishes. The key number is how many houses are finished. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. Break for news and we'll be back right after this.
0: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson.
1: Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Uh, October 4th is a solemn day for many people in our Indigenous communities. Um, It is a day to demand action for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, October 4th, there are Sisters in Spirit vigils held across the country. Uh, to mark the passing of these women and girls, and the fact that many of them remain disappeared, and the inaction in many cases and indifference in many cases of the authorities and generally the Canadian public until maybe a few years ago. And people would argue about that. Bridget Thule is an Algonquin grandmother and founder of Families of Sisters in Spirit and joins us on the line. Bridget, thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. Tell me about what's happening today and where you are and and why it's so important today for you.
5: Well, right now I'm on Parliament Hill sitting. We're having a vigil here for all the families of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And um, we're sharing stories and um, supporting each other here on the hill. We have the ministers and we have um, senators and a bunch of other, um, a bunch of other ministers here to come and support us. Um, you know, we've been doing this for a while now. It's 17 years we've been on Parliament Hill, and um, you know, we're looking for change. We need accountability, transparency, and big time change. So this is what we're asking for.
1: After the various reports that have come out and a, and a heightened. Public awareness, uh, I would argue, after inquiries. Some Canadians might assume that things have improved. Um, What is your perspective on that? Have they?
5: Um, Well, I've been doing this like for almost two decades now, Mm -hmm. and uh, for me, nothing has improved. You know, we're still asking for the same things. The only thing, the difference, there today is there's more missing and murdered indigenous women you know it's happening more and more when it should be happening less and less, so we have a big problem and you know things we need to do something before you know lots more go missing or murdered what ha- this is what we want we were we're you know, we're actually looking at accountability from police here and investigating our cases the way they were investigated. I know some did a really good job, but others, um, a lot of other cases, um, the police, uh, you know, families are trying to get answers or, or anything um, any any word on the investigations and they're not communicating with us even my own case is uh, 21 years old so, my mother's anniversary this is one of the reasons why i am here today it's her 21st anniversary and um uh, there's three police forces in my mother's case involved and um, i was so happy that th- this year that uh, in april The Minister of Indian Affairs of Quebec, Ian Lefrenier, came to my reserve along with the Montreal Police and representatives from the um, public safety minister's office. They came to apologize and to listen to our family on the reserve. So after 20 years of calling for justice and asking them to acknowledge my mother, they finally did. And this meant a a great deal to our family because they never talked about it or anything before. And just to have the acknowledgement was, you know, it was good. It was a good feeling for us. But yet acknowledgement is not accountability. Mm -hmm. And what our families are calling for is accountability and transparency from the government and from the police. Because if we can't do this alone, you know, and we need to all be included in this, and the police have to be accountable to, along with the government, if we're going to get anywhere. You, the recommendation thing going to work if just half of us are doing it, you know, half of us mm. are accountable. So we need accountable all the way, 100% true. We need unity. We need everyone to be involved.
1: What happened to your mother?
5: My mother was crossing the road um, at night coming home from uh, my sister's house and she was in the middle of the road, the cops said, and they struck and killed her. She died instantly.
1: And you believe and the other families believe that Indigenous women and girls are, particularly by law enforcement, treated in a different way than if those victims were white or from different communities.
5: Yes, yes, absolutely. I can even, you know, it even shows in my own native police force, they have not spoken to us and they have not, um, they have not came, come and talk to my family, even when the, sorry about that. That's okay. Even when the uh, minister came to the reserve to apologize to our family, our native police weren't there. So they didn't come, they didn't show up, nothing. And they haven't spoken to our family or tell us anything in the past 21 years. And even today, I don't even know if they'll help us or, you know, what what, what happens. And this is what I'm fighting for now is to know what's going on with our police, you know, with our own police. And this is all police forces there, not just the RCMP or ottawa police it's native police forces provincial police all police forces
1: and and quickly i've just got a couple of minutes left when you talk about accountability from police what do you mean
5: i'm talking about the way they do our cases like for instance in my mother's case there were three police forces involved and um, the brother of the cop that killed my mother was in charge of the scene. And there's so much conflict of interest and there was jurisdiction issues and coroner issues and everything was wrong in my mother's case. They they shut, they, well, They my mother's case was open for three months only. And they never even told the family or anything it was closed. I only found out about it like a year later. So stuff like this and there's a lot if you if you paid attention yesterday to the press conference mm-hmm. the families were talking about this you know and this is this is just a handful of families that were on yesterday you know we have this happening in every province territory everywhere you know
1: Bridget appreciate your time today thank you for coming on
5: Oh thank you for having us you know it's an honor and a pleasure to do this and we need to help each other. You know, we have to do this. I'm calling for unity. You know, all of us, we can't do this alone. You know, all of us, all of us together, unity.
1: Bridget Thule, an Algonquin grandmother and founder of Families of Sisters in Spirit. Thank you.
5: Thank you. ka Jimmy everyone.
1: Pretty simple ask, right? Lots going on. Lots of off-ramps on this story. Yeah, but things are getting better. Yeah, but whatever it is. But you and I all know if this was, if these were missing girls and women from a suburb in B.C., Alberta, Ontario, or Nova Scotia, or Quebec, and they happened in the numbers that are happening off-reserve and off Indigenous communities, we all know the response would be completely different and that's their point. And that's the point of why they keep coming back 17 years later to say they want accountability and they want change. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty basic ask that treat these missing women and girls, regardless of their circumstances, um, just the same as any other missing women and girls or people. And um, clearly from Bridget's perspective and many of the uh, families of sisters and spirits perspective, uh, not enough has changed. The approach has still been the same. Can you imagine you lose someone and the police don't talk to you? Someone is is, is killed or murdered or disappears and they just don't return your calls. Like that's, and and i'm taking what she said at face value because that's I've, I've heard that over and over again that they cannot penetrate and just get simple basic answers hopefully that changes i'm graham richardson in for evan solomon stay with us we're back after the break
0: it's the evan solomon show with special guest host graham richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. We're going to ease things up a little bit here. We are heading into one of my favorite holidays, Halloween. Not really holidays. too bad it's on a Monday this year. I always like it when it's on the weekend. Um, but w- we've heard a lot about the pent-up demand of Halloween because they've been sort of Halloweens with an asterisk over the last couple of years. Last year was okay, uh, but not full on. This year will be more full on as we move away uh, from almost, well, every pandemic restriction, therefore going door-to-door, uh, not a problem. Remember, they, like it seems almost surreal. We canceled Halloween. Like kids couldn't go door-to-door to get candy. I understand why. There's, we don't need to get into the debate about it, but it just we're going to look back on this time as an extraordinary time. Uh, Bruce Winders, a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, joins us on the line. Uh, you're expecting... Big demand for Halloween this year. We're already seeing it in some stores. I think.
8: Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on the show, too. Um, yeah, I think everyone is kind of pointing toward a pretty strong uh, sales, like demand side of sales this year for the reasons you mentioned. Right? We've kind of been shut down for the last couple of years, and everyone just wants to get back to normal. You know, um, so so sales wise, it's going to be big. But you know, there are there are some hiccups out there. Inflation is high. Supply chain issues are there. And for some people, you know, with with inflation and everything going on, they may have to sort of uh, watch their money on Halloween and find ways to do Halloween for less.
1: And the other thing, people will be thinking about Christmas now in terms of what it's going to cost. And maybe they, you know, if you had to choose between Christmas and Halloween, most people would choose Christmas.
8: Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, And that's part of the dynamic that's sort of in the fold here is that people have to look at, you know, the next few months in terms of spending and how they're going to allocate those precious dollars. Well, they may have to cut back a little bit on some Halloween stuff. Certainly, there'll be candy for kids if you have kids running around outside. But, you know, decor and costumes, you know, people might be making their own costume a little more this year.
1: How big is this business for Halloween? It's in previous years, I've been kind of surprised by the overall number. And then you look around at some of the houses and you can actually see the money being spent.
8: Yeah, I think it's uh, the second largest uh, holiday after uh, Christmas, so to speak, um, is Halloween. We spend a lot of it. We spend a lot of money on it. And I mean, there's some people who spend just a ton of money on it. They go to parties, you know, adult parties, and they have their full $200 costumes on. And, you know, people get right into it, right? And you're right, the decor is incredible. Back in the 70s when I grew up, we didn't have inflatables and massive type of displays we have on people's lawns. So you can easily drop, you know, several hundred dollars on Halloween.
1: And is your sense? You talked about supply chains. Uh, is it going to be more challenging if you want to spend that money, given what's gone on?
8: I think I think it might be a little challenging. I mean, there's probably going to be issues as it relates to some of the candy. You know, some of the high-profile candy, the stuff that you see on the end caps. You know, they're probably going to go quick, and you'll be left with a lot of the candy that you know isn't really your first choice. So people will have candy. Um, there's there's lots of inflatables and things to buy. But, you know, if you're one of those people who steps right into it, you might find it a bit harder this year. Because if this is the year to get into it, well, you know, all the products that are, you know, are used for decor and costumes, they're all coming from Asia. So, you know, folks had to sort of throw a dart on this a while ago. And, uh, you know, there's still a few supply chain issues out there.
1: The one big thing I've heard about that's the new uh, piece of uh, Halloween equipment is that 12-foot tall skeleton that, apparently sells out like mad. And if, you're, if, if it's basically in October, you can't get one. Um, and it, it's that kind of thing. If you're into it, uh, you got to be into it early to get it, whereas in previous years, they might have more supply. Yeah, and
8: decor always sells out early. You know, decor always sells out the early part of October so people can enjoy it. And you're right, there's always a couple of items that get really trendy. You know, it's been the inflatables recently. And if you don't get it really early in October, you're probably not going to get it for the season.
1: All right. Well, that's a pretty scary report, but we wish everybody the best. Uh, Bruce Winter, great to have you on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right, uh, author and retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. A little secret pre-pre um, pandemic that I I might be a bit of an inflatable guy. Got a mummy. Got a witch running into a tree. Um, got a giant, another giant sort of scarecrow-like witch, which is about oh I don't know. Uh, 12 feet tall, inflatable, love the inflatables cause you just plug them in, stick them in the ground and away you go. That's the kind of guy I am at Halloween. But every, every Halloween I'd go to the Canadian tire or Lowe's or whatever, like the day before Halloween and they're moving them off. Like they're, they're, they're on sale. Some of them are like 50% off. Of course I'm saying this and now people are going to go and they're going to be all gone, but well, maybe not. But anyway if you're looking for inflatables and you're not too particular about what you might get you just want something new for a few years that was my tradition for a few years the kids kind of liked it and now i'm not one of these over the top spend weeks building the display guys because i just don't have the patience to do that but i don't mind the uh the inflatables and what i love is the uh the dogs just don't know what to make of it like they it gets dark and they go up and my dogs just go nuts. Like what is going on here? Uh, which is always fun. Uh, so Halloween's coming up and, um, whether it's candy, as we said, or other things, they're going to be in high demand. And so if you're interested, um, get out there, uh, as soon as you can. The hockey Canada hearing at heritage has wrapped up. We're going to rerun some of that for you, uh, towards the end of the program. To call it heated would be an understatement, I think. Um, Mackenzie Gray from CTV News tweeting out, he was uh, monitoring it um, for CTV News, and he said, rarely do you have unanimity in the all parties asking their questions that they were today. And equally unusual and interesting was the pushback from Hockey Canada, um, including Andrea Skinner, the current board chair, defending the organization suggesting this is not a problem that is unique to hockey. It is in other parts of the society as well. Of course, the problem with that position is we are faced with two allegations of a group sexual assault, one in 23, 2003, that has just been revealed in the last few months, the other in 2018, which um, they essentially uh, tried to settle out of court quietly um that was uh revealed by tsn and other reporters on it as well um that there there had been this settlement now london police of course are relooking at their criminal investigation somebody pointing out on our text board you can do a criminal investigation without and do charges without the complainant um participating it's harder but you can still do it wondering why that hasn't happened and what the London police are going to say about their second investigation, because of course they closed their first one and then there was a payment made. So to to call this a mess is an understatement. It is a watershed moment for Hockey Canada. And rarely do you have all parties agreeing that essentially it should be torn down or there should be wholesale change inside that allowed this to fester for as long as it has. I think anybody with any connection of high level hockey, too high level hockey, there are all sorts of things that go on off the ice, whether it's issues with hazing, um, issues with misconduct, uh, in some cases, drinking and drugs, all, all of that, all of those things you could argue are societal problems. Um, the difference here is, you know, the top level of the sport. It appears, and they would they would push back against this. It would it appears attempted to just make this go away without fully investigating and with no consequences, as many MPs pointed out on the camp panel today, with so far no consequences for the players. Well. Hockey Canada says they're they're waiting for that report to come back and the investigations, the various investigations, before they do anything about it or the players face consequences. And I'll I'll put this to you: the players would not face any consequences if this remained private and wasn't public. But in this day and age, that's virtually impossible. I'm Graham Richardson. In for Evan Solomon. When we come back, yes, we're talking about Christmas because we just talked about Halloween, and we're not—we're going to break the rule. Usually, you wait for Halloween to talk about Christmas, but this is a fun one. The top toys of 2022. You can weigh in as well. Stay with us.
0: This is The Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio
1: Talk Network. Welcome back. Thanks for for being here. Just uh, past uh, 135 here in the uh, central part of the country. Hope you're having a good day. Um, This is uh, kind of fun. I I remember uh, I'm 52, so growing up in the 70s. Six million dollar man. G.I. Joe um stretch armstrong anybody out there remember stretch armstrong The basically the rubber wrestling super guy you could stretch his arms all over the place and legs it was it was a it was a crazy toy in the 70s the hottest toys the hottest toys toys r us has released their hottest toys of 2022 oh just in time for the buying season for the holidays All of that is, of course, coincidence. It's not marketing. There's no marketing involved here. We're not trying to get you to think way ahead of time and spend your dollars. It's just uh, they're doing you a favor, the people at Toys R Us. You know? Like, hey, hey, we're, we're concerned about your ability to plan for a holiday that is literally more than two and a half months away. We need you to plan for Christmas morning. Or whatever holiday you might celebrate when you're buying people presents. Anyway, it's still fun to look at it, okay? I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. Um, Here are the top toys of 2022. And I want you to text us in 71010. Text us your favorite toys from back in the day, okay? Stuff that you still remember. Gives you, uh, you know, great memories. Stuff that you had to have. Uh, That $6 million man, G.I. Joe. Didn't G.I. Joe... For all the seventies kids out there, I think GI Joe had like a camper van, the $6 million man had a sports car and you could look through the $6 million man's head and have like a, um, the the young people in the studio are looking at me like I have two heads here, but you'd look through his head and he'd have the bionic eye built into the toy. It was the best because it could make it, um, it could make it, you know, make stuff magnified because it was bionic. Of course, it was bionic. They had a way to rebuild him. Steve Austin, the bionic man. Um, okay, so text us your fa- favorite toys. When my kids were young uh, in our household, Thomas the Tank Engine was an obsession, so much so that their mother, I would argue, was more into Thomas than the child. Like, she had a problem because it was so awesome. I did too, but I was not as addicted as certain people in my family. Text your favorite toys 71010. This year... The Hot Wheels Mario Kart Rainbow Road, ooh, that sounds cool. Now, Chris, have you played the Mario Kart video game where you play on Rainbow Road?
7: Yes, I actually
1: have. I'm not a big video game guy, but I know that game.
7: I love Mario Kart. Yeah, it's probably one of the my fave games.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so they've got a they've got an actual Hot Wheels Rainbow Road um, structure. Um, imagine next Jurassic World Mega Stomp and Rumble giga dino does anybody know what that is do you know what that is cory so i think it's an
9: example of just one of those bit it's like it's just a big dinosaur toy but it's yeah. got like effects and stuff that it can do basically okay so like a more high sounds, speed version
1: okay yeah because i was gonna say like at this this day and age they can't just have it's not just a dinosaur that stomp around that's not good enough right the other one there was one where We would, uh, you'd buy action figure toys and you'd plant them on a platform and they'd show up on the screen on the video game. I, 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 I don't know what that's called. Skylanders.
9: Skylanders. Toys to life. Yeah, that's what that was.
1: That's it. Skylanders. Uh, okay. Uh, Play-Doh Kitchen Creations, colorful cafe playset. Awesome to see, you know, those classic toys reimagined. The Nerf Minecraft Subruing Motorized Bow. What, what is that?
9: So this is, it's an item from Minecraft, the video game that kay. they've made, like a real toy, but it's sort of like a bow and arrow thing. But Nerf. Yes. So it shoots darts. So you're holding it like a bow and yeah. arrow, but darts come out. Yeah. You know what? Uh, High speed stuff again. The
1: Nerf stuff mm-hmm. in the last 10 years, like the Nerf guns. Yeah. A friend of mine collected a whole bunch of them and he sells them at garage sales when his kids grow out of them. Holy cow. Like what an arsenal. It's it, unbelievable.
9: I had friends even when I was younger, uh, like belt fed, right? And crazy. You could yeah, put it on a stand. Guns, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's like this is really elaborate. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Magic Mixie's cauldron rainbow. What, what is, what is that?
9: That I'm, I'm actually, I'm gonna have Not to pull sure. that one we'll up. The rest I was up. pretty sure of. Okay,
1: okay. Um, the Bluey 4WD camper van play set, uh, four WD and campervan playset. Uh, oh, for a four wheel drive, of course, yeah. campervan playset. Uh, that sounds cool. Um. What's another one? Oh, Lighthawk Highway Patrol slot car set. Now is Lighthawk. We're getting a text here, of course. Um somebody's mentioning Light Bright in the 70s. Yes, the Light Bright. Remember the Light Bright? Yeah. What is Lighthawk Highway Patrol slot car set? Do we know?
9: So it's a similar thing to what you're saying. I just I just pulled it up so I could have the image, but it's like a classic sort of throwback slot car set. Like you have the little trigger. And you pull that, and you set up slot this track. Slot
1: cars were fabulous. Yeah, yeah. There were two competing types of slot cars. Oh, those were amazing.
9: Yeah, and this is a little police chase setup. So you've got the guy trying to get away.
1: Yeah. Oh, we got some great texts. I, 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 I triggered some of my age group. Yeah. Evil Knievel. <laughs> the Evil Knievel stunt cycle. I still have it, Mark. Yes, Mark. Uh, and I think the action figure for Evil Knievel, was that the one with the car, uh, the cape on it? And for you youngins out there, he was a daredevil. He had a cane, a diamond encrusted cane. He would walk through Vegas and he'd actually jump the Grand Canyon in a rocket like in real life. And then they, you know, just look up Evil Knievel. It was fantastic. Um, the, uh, we're also getting uh, hockey on the street. Yeah. The Power Rangers. Uh, Magic Mixies is a, is super awesome. Somebody likes that, and Smash Up Derby. There's another fabulous toy. So anyway, um, have a look at it. Toys R Us is out with fabulous toys uh, for 2022. Uh, do you follow these lists? Uh, yeah, it's keep an eye
9: on them. It's fun to look at it, and yeah. then you open a lot of them up, though, and your eyes get big, when you go, "Toys are expensive now, oh,
1: man! Yeah. Oh everything, man, everything!"
9: But it is funny seeing like you know the slot car example, where it's like that's back. It's 2022, and we're they're like, we can get a slot car out there.
1: Getting, oh, remember Operation? Absolutely. Operation or Battleship? Yeah. You sank my Battleship. Also, uh, I'm getting a couple Easy Bake Ovens? Absolutely. Um, And Baby Go Bye Bye was a doll in a pink car. All right. There's some of the toys from classic times. Um, I will say too as well, you know, given everything that kids have at their fingertips now, it is just, it's like a different world, right? Like... Um, and, and the other thing too, is I, 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 I'm dating myself here, but I distinctly remember the catalog arrives, you know, like a long time ago, not anymore, but the catalog arrives, like trying to figure out what you want for Christmas as you a circle kid, it, in the book. it took forever, right? Everything was slower. Now it's like, click, click, click. It's on, you know, uh, it's, it's done in a different way with Santa. So anyway, um, oh, big Jim. Big Jim. Yeah. That's another one. Big Jim. Oh man. Memory lane here. Okay. Nobody, nobody texted in about Stretch Armstrong, but I I swear that was a, well, you look it up. It's on the internet. Stretch Armstrong. Um, when we come back, I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. We're going to redo and and re-listen to the, um, the heritage committee, heritage subcommittee that is overseeing hockey, Canada and sport. And the very tense, uh, two hours of testimony that, uh, finished just a few moments ago um, with hard questions to Hockey Canada, demands that the leadership step aside and that the culture of the place be completely revamped from top to bottom, given the um, intense scrutiny over these payments made and the fact that it was not disclosed to people who had essentially paid for these funds through their hockey fees, that the funds were essentially used in some cases to settle sexual assault cases, including the allegations against the uh, 2018 World Juniors team, and now new allegations which have not been settled or uh, investigated. They're being investigated by Halifax Police, the 2003 World Juniors team. So a a very, very difficult and tense committee meeting. The parliamentarians rarely on the same page. All parties asking very similar questions. We'll hear some of that when the Evan Solomon Show returns. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us.
0: The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson. On the iHeartRadio
1: Talk Network. Welcome back. Just before we move on, uh, I I was talking about the top toys of 2022 and I mentioned Stretch Armstrong. We're getting a lot of memories of Stretch Armstrong from the 70s. Hi, Graham. I do remember Stretch Armstrong. My brother got him, my younger brother got him one year for Christmas long ago. He had gooey red fluid inside of him and boy, could he stretch and contort. Now, the only reason you know he had gooey red stuff inside of him is because you busted him open. And other people did the same thing, including me, a kid across the street, got one and I jammed something into him because I was curious, broke him open. They had to get him another one. Anyway, everything I remembered stretch Armstrong, my cousins and I actually tore one apart to see what was inside. Hard jelly goo. Um, Hey, Graham, I'm 60. My favorite as a kid, Major Matt Mason man in space toy. There's another one. I had a stretch. My cousin stuck a pin in it. It bled out some slime and wouldn't stretch anymore. I was devastated. All right. Um, okay. There's our toy nostalgia uh, for another time. And, and it's a bit early, but uh, Toys R Us put out its top toys of 2022. Uh, we will post them on our website if you wanted to have a look at them. Uh, some familiar classics coming back like Play-Doh and that sort of thing. Uh, but it is that time of year where people start to focus on that sort of stuff. Um, on Parliament Hill today, we've been watching a, a lot of this. It, it ended about 11 o'clock or sorry, at one o'clock Eastern from 11 to one. Hockey Canada in front of the Heritage Heritage Committee, all MPs from all parties questioning um, their choices, their governance and whether the board and the leadership can stand given what the Hockey Canada has faced in the last few months. If you haven't heard or have lost track. Essentially, there's an allegation of a group sexual assault against a woman in London, Ontario. The 2018 World Junior team was at a golf tournament. Several members of the team were allegedly involved in this. At the time, police uh the, the complainant did not go to police or um wasn't pressing particularly hard for a full criminal investigation. Um and the police looked at it and then didn't press any criminal charges. The complainant did sue and there was a settlement that um, became public because Rick Westhead dug around and found this. And that's when, that's when the storm hit sponsors have left governments have cut funding hockey Canada defending strongly again today, particularly the interim board chair, Andrea Skinner, under intense questioning from MPs. This is near the end of the hearing today. This is Liberal MP Tim Lewis getting a chance to ask questions of Skinner. And let's listen in before we head away.
10: Ms. Skinner, I'd like to get your thoughts about the appropriateness, appropriateness of the government stopping federal funding to Hockey Canada and also your thoughts on corporate sponsors pulling their funding. What, what message did that send to you?
4: Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. It, it, uh, I think it sent a, uh, a message of you know, the degree of importance um, that, uh, that hockey plays uh, amongst members of, of the public. And um, it, I, I think it's, it's compelled Hockey Canada to be better at communicating and more transparent, and I view that as a positive thing.
10: So I want to say for the record that this funding was pulled before the story came out about the newly revealed participants' legacy trust fund, which Hockey Canada never mentioned. That's something that uh, didn't, uh, didn't uh, come up in previous testimony. Do you see that perception of that loss of confidence?
4: I, I, I understand. I understand that there is that perception out there. And again, as a parent with two young kids, I understand a concern about where are our funds going, um, where's our money going that that participant legacy trust fund has been fundamentally misconstrued. And I've, I've tried to address that in my in my comments today.
10: Okay, well, and it's, you, you mentioned our children. That's that's primarily why we're here. We're looking out for our, our children in our communities. It's apparent from the testimony and the previous testimony that, that the perception is that we as a committee, uh, journalists, Canadian public, we all have to pull this information out in an extraordinary way. Testimony from you, uh, journalists digging for the truth, The message is somehow being sent that it's our responsibility to keep digging uh, until we get to this truth. How can I go back to my community? How can we all go back to our communities? Let the people know, the parents know, that it's safe for them to enroll their children in hockey and that part of their hard earned money that they've been paying for their children to participate in sports seems to have been used to pay off sexual assault cases
4: madam chair I, I think i think you can commend them to my transcript of of this proceeding um i think that there are there is messaging on our website including messaging that i drafted that seeks to reassure parents out there in particular um that that some of the information that they understand uh, may not be may not be the may not be the truth. And so I, I think, you know, this continues to be the game that, that many of us have grown up and loved, and we're trying to make it better, and we're working hard to do that. And we've got an open line of communication with members of the public, our members, with our sponsors. Uh, as I mentioned, we've been having town halls and focus groups. We're moving forward in a positive direction.
10: Okay, thank you. I'm not sure that today's testimony has instilled that confidence.
1: That was the tone from Hockey Canada, in particular from Andrea Skinner. The perception is wrong. Sexual assault is a problem all over society. It's not just a hockey problem. And as you heard the MP there talking about the fact that it's like pulling teeth, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, trying to get information from Hockey Canada. When in fact, kids' fees, parents' fees for hockey went into these funds and they were secret. That's a truth. Um... Plural funds. Hockey Canada is suggesting that there's some connection to a previous fund and that this second fund was actually used to, uh, was put in, a, essentially extended because of some historical claims that might come down the road later. That's all nothing to see here. But how many times have MPs, reporters, everyone, parents heard there's nothing to see here. Let's just move on. They're not going to be able to move on. This was not a good hearing for Hockey Canada. And clearly, Ms. Skinner, the interim board chair, wanted to come in and aggressively defend Hockey Canada. But just from the tone of the questions, it sounds like it didn't work. At at, at the core here, you have a fundamental truth that There was a fund that people didn't know about that was used to settle sexual assault cases. And the reason we're talking about it is because of an allegation of a group sexual assault by the top players on Team Canada in 2018. And all of it had to be pulled out from Hockey Canada. I would suggest in any other organization it would be handled differently. And one of the MPs Pointedly asking again today, what, what has happened to the players? Skinner at some point said, there's sexual assault in uh, politics too. Look what happened to that senator. She's referencing Don Meredith, who's just been charged criminally with sexual assault. The MPs quickly pointed out, he's also thrown out a caucus, disgraced, no longer in the Senate. And now criminally charged. None of that has happened to any of the players. We're going to continue to watch this. I'm uh, Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon, here today and tomorrow. So glad you joined us. So we will see the fallout from what is pretty extraordinary Hockey Canada hearing. Thanks for being here. Have a great afternoon.